Hello everyone, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to another edition of the Marathon Bet podcast. More and more of you seem to be listening to it, which gives us great joy indeed. As you know, the theme for this series of podcasts are the deadly sins of football. We're on to one of my favourites today. Anyone who take a look at me might realise there's a part of me that does succumb to the sin of sloth, or to use its modern parlance, laziness over the next uh, 40 minutes or so myself and the former Crystal Palace owner and chairman, star of this podcast and these days a widely published author as well, uh, Simon Jordan is with me as well. Hello, Simon. Hey, Danny. Yeah, we have to be slightly careful here, don't we? Because everybody has a lazy part to their life. They do indeed, but we're going to highlight particularly lazy parts of the nation's game football that's right that's the theme of today's marathon bet podcast sloth laziness just because you're a good player doesn't mean you'll be a good manager just because you were revered by the fans in one guys they know the club what is that it's irrelevant when they've done their hour in the gym they've done their half an hour out on the practice pitch banging each other if you'll excuse that expression, Simon. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I didn't bother to interpret the fact that 99.8 kilos is nearly 16 stone. It's lumpy, yeah. So what I'm employing is a sumo wrestler rather than a footballer. But Mesut Ozil's running stats are incredible. Yeah, I think Mesut Ozil you know, is a certain type of player that body language-wise gives you that thinking. But I also think when the going gets tough, that boy don't get going. Um, shall we do some more or we are too lazy to carry on? Listen, when it comes to the subject of taking a swing at some of the practices and principles behind football, I don't think we could ever accuse you and I of being lazy about it. As you know, you can contact us at MarathonBetPod on Twitter, at MarathonBetPod on Twitter. And last week we were talking about which players, because we knew we were going to be doing Sloth this week, are really, really lazy. And you know what? Hundreds of people replied, uh, again, I say on Twitter, at MarathonBetPod, but they nearly all focused on three players. So I'm going to pick out representatives for the listenership. So first up, thanks to Harrison Reed, who's at Harrison Daffid on Twitter, who said, you obviously never saw John Joe Shelby at Swansea when we're talking about what players are lazy. Mm. A master on his day, but a slug every other. I didn't get that impression about Shelby. I mean, I, I think that when you saw him in the past, and you know he had lots to say for himself when he was at Liverpool, came off against Man United and blasted Ferguson. Shelby's not one of those players that I think is lazy. I think he's under-resourced in the teams that he's played in. OK, well, what about Mal Robinson, who's uh, again on Twitter has said, I mean, Mal, uh, this is a very controversial view. He says, Matt Letizier was the laziest player I ever saw, but he scored some raspers. No, I don't think, I think Letizier was, I think Letizier is a luxury player, but I think he's a quality player. And if you look at his achievements at Southampton, I don't think he was put in the team to work hard. I think certain players, you just give them the ball. We had one at Palace, Victor Moses. I remember Neil Warnock saying to him, I'm not interested in you tackling back. I want your head up, getting in the opposition's half. I don't want you running back and tracking people back. I just want you to attack people. And you're a great one for comparing strategies to outcomes. And the outcome for Southampton Football Club was that they stayed in the Premier League year, year after year, year after year because, of people because like he Matt got 20 That's right. goals. That's right. And I'm sure his teammates took him to the pub every season to have another pie, Matt. I think it'll, pro- it'll probably go down to the fact that Matt Letizia spent a lot of his time in McDonald's as people's perception of his pre-match meal that he himself broadcast that gives that thinking about him. Like, I, don't, I think he's a luxury player. I don't think he's a lazy player. The next one, though, I think may... Uh, apply because uh, there's a laziness about things that he's involved in and perhaps other than his football skill and maybe he's undersold his football skill as well. Paul Barrett is among dozens of you who just wrote the same two words, Mario Balotelli. Why always me? That was his strap line, wasn't it? Because it is you, you, Mario, Mario, because you're a moron and you let fireworks (laughs) out of your window. Very talented player. I've sort of put Daniel Sturridge in that sort of bracket as well. I know that's going to be controversial mm. in certain people's minds. I don't know if Balotelli's lazy. I didn't watch enough of him to see. I don't think he's that sort of player that runs around pressing fullbacks. Inordinate talent that he had. 
But, you know, lots of clubs have the same issues with him. But I don't know if laziness is at the centre of the thinking. I just think attitude and outlook is his problem. And there you see what happens to you on the Marathon Bet podcast. Even when we ask your opinion, we may not agree with it. And we'll tell you, absolutely right. We'll have more homework for you, of course. And you can always contact us on Twitter. Remember that address again, at Marathon Bet Pod. At Marathon Bet Pod. Simon, there are so many places we could have started this. You'll forgive me if I start with you. Sure. You always tell me, and a part of the fun of doing these things with you is, is getting some furtherance of my own education, that the most important decision club owners like yourself yep. ever have to make is the appointment of the football manager, the coach, whatever they're going to call them. Yep. I often think this looks like one of the laziest processes ever. I'll come back to why I think that. But first of all, tell me, in your mind, what is the process of appointing a new manager? Well, what I say, Danny, and what we've discussed a number of times, Times is probably the biggest decision that a football club owner has is who he hires and ultimately when he fires them. And the process of recruitment of a football manager, my first experience of it was was very lazy. You know, I remember writing in my book that ultimately I spent an inordinate amount of time recruiting a finance director, went for about 15 interviews, got the board to interview him, interviewed him on four or five occasions and then put him through a whole raft of examinations and forensic evaluations of his credentials and where he'd worked. Yet when I employed my first football manager, it was kind of done on the back of a fag packet. And the industry lead you to that because it's like no other industry where you know of these people you have a preconceived perception of them because you've read about them or you've encountered them or the very small world that is football has given you an idea of what they may or may not represent and of course what happens is is that football managers are very adept at being in an echo chamber so they are very adept at being able to mirror what they think that you as an owner will want to hear. I'll spend your money as you would. I'll look after it that way. I'm motivated by bringing young players through. I don't just need to have an endless support of finances. I'm trying to balance the ideals of the owner with the desires of the football club and its fans. They've got a checklist, haven't they? Yeah, and so there is an element of the industry itself kind of makes you a little bit slothful. It kind of makes you lazy in your thinking. What does change that is the amount of money that that will cost you if you don't do your research, if you don't really get into the thinking of managers. And I tried very early, Danny, after the first appointment, to really go back to some commercial thinking and try and take managers that sit in interviews out of their comfort zone and put them where I really want to be, which is get the real guy rather than the interview head. In what percentage of these processes, Simon, does that the club already know the person they're going to employ? In my instance, I had clear views about what I wanted from a manager. And I then had a process where, of course, when you fire a manager in this business, Mm. you you get inundated with either people that are out of work looking to come to you direct or football agents that are representing managers trying to put their client into you. And that gives you an idea of, A, the enthusiasm that's out in the marketplace for your particular job, but also gives you a shortcut. What it does is... Because football managers are a difficult breed and very difficult to read at times, it can make you want to get through the interviewing process very quickly. I found interviewing football managers very tiresome and very irksome. And very quickly, what I did was I got a director of football to be able to understand what I wanted and then whittle and get a short list down to people that could communicate with me. There's a couple of things that happen in this sort of top of the championship Premier League level and I want to get your opinion on those. We've seen in the recent months a real move back to appointing 
club legends uh, into high-powered jobs within clubs. Frank Lampard and yep. Solskjaer as managers. Edwin van der Sar at Manchester United and Adu at Arsenal as the directors of football, whatever their titles are. Is that a good thing to do or is that laziness as well or a combination of both? I think it's probably a combination of both as most things in football are. I think there is a tendency to try and make things fit, to try and get people back into an environment because conventional wisdom tells you in the back of your mind that they were successful here in one guise. They will represent that guise. They will represent those credentials in a different guise. And it is lazy thinking. It is lackadaisical and under-aroused approach to the way that you recruit because just because you're a good player doesn't mean you'll be a good manager. Just because you were revered by the fans but in one guise... they know the club. What does that... It's irrelevant. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just lazy anecdotes that get trotted out by the football industry about, More how, about them later. how that works and how this works. Of course, if you know the club, then that's an advantage. You know the tea lady. You know how the, the kit, man- the kit manager that, yeah. works, right? What you don't know, ostensibly, as a player, is how to manage up because the biggest decision that a manager has often is how he deals with his owner. know there's a circuit of old lags yeah. the current generation is coming to an end there'll be new ones is Mark Hughes Tony Pulis Sam Allardyce yep. Harry Redknapp you could name them you know who get job after job after job is that laziness or is that looking for an experience I think sometimes it's lazy thinking I think a lot of the time it's because you're in a situation where you need an instantaneous fix and conventional wisdom again tells you that these guys have a track record specifically Sam and to some degree Tony Pulis I think that shine's gone on Tony Pulis I think Sam Allardyce you call Sam in when you've got a problem that doesn't mean your club advances but then in those sort of situations often you're not looking for advancement you're it's looking for It's amazing pres- that he's not been called Fireman Sam Yeah yeah <laughs> you're looking for preservation when I sit on the sidelines sometimes and I think you and I have done this specifically around Claudio Ranieri you look at some of the thinking that comes into football and it beggars belief. When did Fulham think that Felix Magath was going to be a good appointment for them? When did they think Kit Simons was going to be a good appointment for them? When did they think Claudio Ranieri is a good appointment? What I find is a great irritation to me is owners are often removed. It's entirely incumbent upon chief executives to really guide and aid and abet football club owners, specifically foreign ones. And so many times, chief executives are lazy in their thinking, lazy in their work ethic, and lazy in the the principles of what they're trying to do for their football club. And that is a great degree of frustration for me. You just named those names. I mean, they they had pieces of luck as well, but it was so scattergun, their their strategies. They managed to get Mitrovic off Newcastle. How they ever managed that, God only knows. And that gets them promoted. I hope that Scott Parker does a good job for them. But I don't know whether it's laziness or just no strategy at all. One minute you've got an Englishman who's never managed before and Scott Parker. Then they're appointing people like Felix Magath, who's 20 years past his sell-by date. Then Ranieri, because of something he did in a land far, far away and all the rest of it. I think we can both agree, though, that the laziest of all and the least likely to succeed is... I don't want to get down on foreigners here because it's nothing to do with that except that. And I'm certainly not going the Harry Redknapp and Sam Allardyce, Carlos Kickerball line here about yeah. these things. But just picking the current vogue is for German managers and some mm-hmm. of them do very well. Then a the guy yeah. comes from Huddersfield and he literally couldn't make a cup of tea never my manager team. Then we had the, the spell of Portuguese manager, and, and which Marco Silva is the most obvious sure. example now. Or, or, the, or Nuno Espírito Santos as well, obviously. He's yeah. done very well, yeah. uh, but he's struggling now. But he, it's almost like 
fashionability about these people. And again, it comes down to sloth, if you like. Okay, that's what's happening. That's what's working. Let's do that. Do agents do this? I don't know, Dan. I think the industry itself perpetuates that myth. I remember listening to Harry Redknapp a few years ago talk about the idea that Eddie Howe would be managing a top six side if his name was Eduardo Suarez because the latest Vogue. I think that's lazy thinking. I think that the football industry has been beset with institutional inherent laziness. We talk about the nature of football management in this country and its evolution. And you look back at the days when Jim Smith was drinking himself to Palookaville or Harry Redknapp spent his entire day reading the Racing Post. And the idea that these managers work hard and the idea that football club owners are just lazy in their thinking, go to the latest raft of popularity, which is for, it used to be for foreign players, now it's foreign managers, now it's foreign assistants, and it's foreign owners. So eventually, somewhere along the line, it'll have to be that actually English players, English managers, English chief executives are themselves very lazy and unprofessional. And the only reason the game has evolved to a level of professionalism and standards that are higher than they were before is because laziness is being driven out and the thinking of ex-footballers becoming current managers. We'll get off of some of these people in a second and get on to others, including ourselves in the media. I'm just putting on my body armour now and one of those Kevlar helmets um, that TV news reporters put on when they're on the front line. When I ask you, in your experience, how hardworking or lazy are football managers? I think that they are they're a product of their environment so in their minds they're very hard working in their minds they apply themselves in their minds they do not take the path of least resistance when you take that out and you look at it from the commercial world where we've occupied space Danny and yep. we've seen what people work it's difficult to fathom what their thinking is now this next generation of managers that are coming in are raising the level of professionalism people like Pep Guardiola are very forensic and very professional in their approach I'm not talking about how much time they spend on the training ground I'm talking about how much time they prepare the environments for the players to excel in and that was something that was ridiculed and vilified by certain segments of either the media or the old lag fraternity that sit there and say there's a way of operating and nothing ever changes so to answer your question i think the profession of management has had a short, sharp kick up the jacksy because it's had people come in like Klopp, like Guardiola, like Pochettino, even down to Farker. Benitez and Farca that have defied conventional wisdom by saying we're going to operate at a certain level, which is based upon being constantly professional, constantly querying our own standards, but also being extremely motivated. And in my time, what I saw was a group of managers that were lackadaisical and under-aroused, but actually believing their own nonsense that they worked very hard. And across the industry, you look at that and say, the scouting networks, how people used to buy players. They used to buy players by videos or tapes, and the scouting network used to re- produce reports. And I used to sit there sometimes reading scouting reports, going, for business expression, mm. where are the KPIs on this player? Why are we buying this player? What is his character like? Why does he want to come here? Do we do any research like this? How many games have we seen him through? How much are we paying for him? Why are we paying this? And the answers coming back to me would always be very non-committal. And I remember you know, going off piece, getting Trevor Francis to do something that absolutely shocked the living daylights out of him. I actually wanted something called a blueprint. I wanted a roadmap yeah. of how this football club was going to start being more successful under his tenure. Now, 
rather than write one, he did everything he possibly could to avoid writing one. And when he did write it, it was like the scribblings of a child. But what it was, was somebody not wanting accountability for their own decision-making process. And they're very good at being motivated by that, but very lazy about being accountable for it. I mean, obviously, before I got into sports media, I believed all the propaganda that the managers were the most hard-pressed human beings on earth. We were being told they run every aspect of the football club and it's a nightmare and all the rest of it. And then I remember getting to a conversation, I think I can safely say who it was, with um, Les Ferdinand, who described to me the lackadaisical training at the club I happened to support, Tottenham Hotspur. And I asked him what he thought might be behind that. He said, well, for a start, the manager, Terry Venables, a great football manager in yeah. many, many ways, former manager of Palace and, and Spurs, was, yeah. Terry Venables used to go and get his hair done every day at noon. So that was the end of physical training at Spurs when Terry, well, he might leave it to his, to his underlings, but the manager had his hair cut every day at noon. I thought, wow, imagine this in some other industry other than fashion. Just incredible. Let's talk about players then, because we fans, and, uh, and you, I'm looking at you as an owner now as well as a fan, when they sign those contracts, I would expect them to work 24-7 for the success of the football club. Sure. What is it fair to expect of players? How hard should they be? And I mean in every aspect of their lives and not just physical fitness and tactics, how hard should they be working on behalf of the football club that well, employs them? I mean, I always wanted... I mean, the idea that players should have this inherent loyalty and love for the club that they play for is, is lazy thinking on behalf of fans because 90% of players and managers that work for and play for clubs didn't actually support that club. And what I expected from a player was if he stayed with us for six weeks, six months or six years, I wanted his best six weeks, six months or six years that he could provide. And of course what I wanted was an element of fitness and motivation and determination. I expected players not to go on their eight-week or six-week pre-season break and come back a stone overweight and use that as an excuse as to the reasons why they weren't ready for, Hang on, for the new season. but you employed both Neil Shipley and Neil Ruddock. I did indeed. And that's where <laughs> I learned the ideal behind not being... Obviously, le- Neil and Neil, I can't speak. Well, but you know I, what I mean? I, let's be clear on, on Neil Ruddock. There was a, a significant piece of laziness on my part when I allowed Harry Redknapp to convince me that Neil Ruddock at 99.8 kilos was the right weight for a professional footballer. And if I got Neil Ruddock at 99.8 kilos, I'd have a fit and motivated player and I should put a weight clause in his contract. Of course, I didn't bother to interpret the fact that 99.8 kilos is nearly 16 stone. It's lumpy, yeah. So what I'm employing is a sumo wrestler rather than a footballer. You know that players train the best part of two hours a day. Like they come in yeah. at 10, they finish at midday, you yeah. feed them in the canteen. Some of them go and do a little bit of extra work in the afternoon if they've got some rehab stuff to do or some specific work that they want to do with themselves. But most of the time they're doing four sessions a week and then you hear about double sessions as a punishment. It's a balancing act. You look at other sports and you say tennis players will play for four or five hours. Boxers will train for significant periods of a day. They're a different sport. Football is that... about recovery as well. They play a lot, a- Absolutely. And And I think that looking at players... I can't understand, I've never been able to understand the mentality of players that don't want to enhance their performance. I don't understand the mentality of players that only kick with one foot. I don't understand the mentality of players that can't do certain things. I know technical ability is part and parcel of it, but it is also a choice. And most of the time, the old Gary player mentality comes into play. You know, the harder I work, the luckier I become. And ultimately, people like David Beckham, as much as I'm not a huge admirer of him personally, I think the standard that he set as a player, which was to get the very best for himself, only came from the fact that he worked incredibly hard. And I don't see that manifesting itself. I didn't see it a lot of the time during my time. And it always surprised me because players do have an inordinate amount of time on their hands. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned boxing, and clearly they have to keep super physically fit 
mostly between fights, but they don't fight very often. You mentioned tennis, where the fitness is kept up because they sure. play every day. Yeah. And we've argued about this in the past, you and I. But an example of uh, another sport that I'm interested in is American football. Now, you quite rightly, people say they only play 16 matches unless they get to the, boy, there's something going on in those 16 matches. But more importantly, and I get it, it's a more technical, tactical, preordained game than football is, soccer. But their players are expected, when they've done their rehabilitation, when they've done their hour in the gym, they've done their half an hour out on the practice pitch banging each other, if you'll excuse that expression, Simon, (laughs) they expect to spend three or four hours in what they call a TV room, looking at what they did last week, looking at what the opponents did last week, looking at what the opponents did the week before that. And so when I see a team ostensibly doing zonal marking, but they don't understand what they're doing, Mm. I think about... All the time they spend, you know, not at the training ground, that wouldn't be acceptable in American football, for instance. And I think it's becoming less and less acceptable in the elite league, specifically the Premier League. I think that the top managers now expect their players to be able to, A, communicate with one another properly, and B, be able to understand the nature of the opposition that they're playing, the reasons why the opposition plays in a certain way, and understand the mistakes or the errors or the challenges that we're not, you know, the brilliance of technology, which has been so slothfully embraced by football, whether it's goal line technology, which took forever for FIFA to regulate, or whether it's VAR, or whether it's the idea of technology that managers get to use in dressing rooms. I remember Sam Allardyce, the lazy thinking about Sam Allardyce is that he's a up and out manager that has no no embracing of modern the thinking. the first of the sports he science was, managers he, along with Wenger. Totally. And he brought a different dimension. And one of the things I loved about technology was that managers could go into the dressing room at halftime and rather than have a debate with the player about you didn't track or you didn't do that particular chore that you were supposed to do during the game or task, they can go live to a replay and go, there it is. And players couldn't argue about what they did and didn't do. I think the modern game now, when I say the modern game, the game as it is now, is cutting through that and making players move away from the institutional laziness that the industry brings, which is, I do training two hours a day, four days a week, I get my day off on Wednesday, I don't come back and do any double sessions, I don't verify my opposition or get any any thoughts about the way that the game's coming up on Saturday, and that's all changing. So the laziness is being driven out of a professional football, which, by the way, absolutely right because the salaries that we're paying should give us excellence away from the football and the training and you know making sure you know you're marking a corner and all the rest of it Gareth Bale has been accused of being lazy when he went to Spain he hasn't necessarily immersed himself 100% in the culture. I don't expect him to be you know, standing for Parliament and all the rest of it. No. But he, I think he speaks Spanish, but he doesn't do it in public. Is it beholden to players to integrate themselves into a club, however lowly or high up it is, the community and all the rest of it? Does that help? Yes and no. You should try and embrace the indigenous culture. But by the same token, I think it's lazy reporting when you're looking to have a go at somebody. No one could have ingratiated themselves really by performance, more than Gareth Bell he's has done. He's won three Champions Leagues and two of them, he got the winning of the yeah, important goal. and I think he's gone to Spain and embraced the football side of playing for Madrid in the right fashion. Maybe he hasn't filled the shoes of Ronaldo quite as people anticipated and maybe there is an element of the fact he could have embraced the culture a little bit more. And of course, they give you examples about Steve McManaman and other people that embraced it far better than he but did. Steve's not a better player than Gareth Bale. No, and I don't think David Beckham embraced it any more than... But I think this is just a different stardust yeah. and a different look and feel about the Beckhams of the world. So I think that's kind of laziness on the behalf of the football media reporting divisions and what really is a simple character 
a difference of opinion and, and a character clash between Zidane and Gareth Bale. And I don't think we've heard very much prior to this season about how Gareth Bale has been lazy with his language. No. I think it's all about Zidane and Bale and everyone's using that as an excuse. As we know, Real Madrid is a very funny club. It often yeah. has one player who we... runs things and his biggest uh, mistake, and it can be laziness, ignorance, or just he doesn't want to do it, um, is not to join Sergio Ramos's club. True. And before that, it was Raul. And before that, sorry, before that, it was the goalkeeper. Got, I mean, Mourinho felt he had to farm the goalkeeper out of Porto to, to break his power. Then it was Raul. I mean, it's incredible. When we were talking earlier about the laziness of players and the training regime. I also think there's a massive laziness in the acceptance of teams like Manchester City's way of playing. There's a laziness about the way that teams approach the game of Man City expecting to get beat. And I think that there's also a laziness about how technically adroit or adept or adept you can expect players to be. And when you see games like the weekend, when you see Norwich play the way that they did, against Man City, beating Man City's press by having technical ability and being able to have competent footballers. None of them are £50 million centre-backs. Exactly. So what that proves is, is the idea that you can't have technical ability and that you can only buy players and that you can't coach players. What Daniel Farker is proving is hard work on the training grounds and overcoming the laziness of thinking that you've got to buy the best players, that players can't be coached. Because too often now, we're just accepting what players will do, what they won't do, what they can do, what they can't do, rather than that old concept of coaches working really, really, really hard to be able to make players be able to passable properly, controllable properly, use their brains. And we saw it clearly with a not an elite side, Norwich. They played Man City at Man City's game and, quite frankly, played it better. And if you look at the way they broke that press, that should prove to the rest of the division, teams that go up against Man City with a degree of acceptance, lazy thinking that they've got to play in a certain way or accept a defeat, that actually the standards need to be raised and they can be raised and footballers can be far better than they are. Which takes us to the mystery of Arsenal Football Club yep. where they've appointed a manager, you live in Spain, you know what he did at Seville with, yep. with, with Munchie as his director of football. Incredible, given the clubs they're up against, even in the Europa League. He then goes to PSG, wins the title. I think I, yeah. think I might win the title with that PSG squad. I but I don't blame him for getting the sack there because the club's a nuts That's what house. it is, yeah. yeah. Yep. He comes to Arsenal. I mean, Arsenal will win some matches 4 and 5 nil with the forwards they've got. Yep. He cannot seem to get past, and I'm sure he's trying hard, the fact that they, unlike Norwich, just cannot find a way to play out from the back or defend their back players as well from the break. The trouble with Arsenal is that they've got an owner that views Arsenal in a certain way and doesn't view them as, a, as anything other than a balance sheet football club that's an arm's length subsidiary of his American businesses. And that's a challenge for Arsenal. It's a challenge for his manager that can't really buy the components that he needs because Arsenal aren't financially able to be able to buy players unless they're getting them on the drip. They can get what people think is a decent player, lazy thinking when they get players like David Luiz. Come on. Danny, you and I don't sit here as people that watch lots of games, have strong, strident views, but don't profess to be experts, but sit here and say that anybody in a parallel universe would think David Luiz is an addition that's going to give you strength, backbone and character in your dressing room. I mean, I have to say, I thought about Arsenal fans at the weekend because I was watching the team that he owns in the NFL, the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah. Really, really fantastic team talent pouring out of both sides of the ball particularly on offence and he was there at the stadium grinning this is the same day that Arsenal's yeah. defence put together 
not a shoestring, but but sticking allowed blasters. Allowed 31 yeah. shots against them. I just thought, what would Arsenal supporters and then, make and of then, his face? And then you hear Granit Xhaka come out with lazy comments like we were frightened in the second half. Well, what benefit is wisdom if it doesn't benefit the wise? Why are you telling us now when you can't affect the outcome? He's supposed to be the leader of that team. There is lazy thinking in terms of employing him as captain. What do the owners of these clubs actually do? Do they work hard? Um, or do they, do they all pass it off to CEOs and things? I think it's very difficult to, because really the main function of an owner is to write checks and to hold order by the very nature of being a standard bearer. So he's as good as his appointments. You know, my ideal of running a football club was when I first bought Crystal Palace was to be very hands-on, to rebuild the football club from a club that had been in trouble for 18 months that had no investment in it. So I spent a lot of time. But after a while, you realise that your main function, as we said at the top of the show, is who you hire and who you fire, and ultimately holding the people that work for you to account. Now, that doesn't make you lazy. It just makes it realistic in terms of you're not going to be head cook and bottle washer. The business itself has a football manager and he manages the core products. If you've done your job properly and you set standards and you ensure that the people that you employ understand clearly these standards, then your endeavour and the work ethic that you put in, it's a slightly different further down the pyramid, but certainly when you get to the top two divisions specifically, it isn't your job to be digging ditches. Because I remember seeing a documentary about your your mate, and he is your close friend, Theo Pafitis, sure. when he had Millwall. Do you remember what I'm going to say now? There's a documentary about Theo owning Millwall, and at one stage, their uh, sort of scoreboard was was run by a series of light bulbs, yeah. and one of the light bulbs has gone missing, and it had a picture, a film of Theo going out with this massive ladder. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to say, I think that's artistic <laughs> licence on, on Theo's part. <laughs> he got this sort of electrician's ladder, Yeah maybe a story and a half high, and replace the light bulb. But then saying that, if Theo is incredibly frugal, so there's a distinct possibility <laughs> it might be true. I think it would be unfair if we didn't shine a light on the working practices, the stakanovite or laziness uh, yeah. of our own industry, the press and broadcasting. And We've got few enough friends as it is, so let's try not to lose the last <laughs> few. Yeah. I have to say, I'll save you from being the one who gets into trouble first. I think... And I have to look at myself in the mirror at most days when I'm required to broadcast that a lot of TV and radio coverage of football, particularly on the national broadcast, but I wonder whether that's imposed. It's formulaic to the point where you yeah, think it's lazy. that's just lazy. It's as lazy. You get up, scratch their backside, walk in, say the same old stuff, never in- investigate, never probe, never dive Don't deep. Don't have the courage of their convictions. Never be, for, to use your word, forensic, never get a microscope or a scalpel or a hammer to the thing. Never question your own thinking, dial it in. And I think, if I may be so bold, the reasons why you and I sat here doing a podcast in the way that we are and the reasons why we get the relationship we do with the end user via the different platforms we're working is because we're authentic and we don't take the path of least resistance and we are very courageous in our thinking and we're not lazy about our approach to it and we do have a look at things, we do evaluate things in front of us and we do call things out. And when you look at the media, there's a propensity at times to be very lazy about the way they they approach things. There's a propensity to represent things in a certain fashion because it suits a certain narrative or a currency or a certain type of feeling. And there's a a tendency to go to old, tried and trusted sources and trot out anecdotes. You know, whenever a manager gets fired and a new manager comes in, the first thing you hear is the players aren't fit enough or one of those lazy little anecdotes that comes out and a criticism of the previous person rather than a, you know an enhancement of the opportunities in front of them. So I find certain segments of the media very challenging for me. I find the idea 
that the industry is going through this massive sea change with diversity at its center. There's nothing wrong with diversity, Danny. I believe in it. I subscribe to it. I don't believe that people in football should get jobs because of their color, their creed, their gender. I believe it should always be because of their ability. I believe, like you do, I think, that everyone should have an equal opportunity. I don't think they should have equal outcomes. When we come across broadcasters and you see people that know what they're talking about and understand the business that they're in, and you know, not just statistically. I've, you know, when I came into broadcasting and started, I had the fortune to hitch my wagon to you and learn some of the way broadcasters broadcast. I looked at journalists and thought, God, Jesus, these guys know a hell of a lot. And then I realized that a lot of what they know is theory and statistics. And so I went back to what I know, which is experience yeah. and real firsthand stuff. But it always conflicted me when I saw certain journalists operating a certain way. I had experiences of people that were lazy in their reporting. I remember a journalist called John Cross who seemed to have developed a dislike for me, and he wasn't the only one, but writing articles about me and supposed managers that I was going to employ. You know, Glenn Hoddle was a particular example. And he mentioned that I had interviewed Glenn Hoddle, which was completely untrue, and that Glenn Hoddle would have worked for any football club besides the football club that I own because he didn't want to work for me. What I can tell you I wasn't lazy about was I wasn't lazy in suing the mirror and ensuring that the uh, defamation claim that I had landed squarely on their shoulders. But it's lazy reporting and formularic reporting that you and I don't like, and there's a lot of it still going on. It's odd. I've been on the other end of it myself. I uh, I once, um, many, many years ago when I was in the music business uh, and the Rolling Stones lost their bass player, Bill Wyman left. Yep. Palace fan, by the way. Yeah, big, big Palace, Palace fan. fan. Yep. There was a lot of chat about who would replace me. And I remember writing, because I know there was moves, that uh, the band Living Colour, their bass player, yep. Doug Wimbish, I'd say he's absolutely the favourite to get that gig with the Rolling Stones. In fact, he didn't. And about uh, a year later, I happened to be at uh, an event at the BBC and Living Colour were there. Man, they were so furious that I'd even... They called me a cake-eating mofo. That was the exact <laughs> phrase. Can you believe that? Um, the cake e- you, come here, you cake-eating mofo. I've never seen uh, you eat a cake, Dan. No, no, but, well, I don't eat cakes, but I have clearly got the shape of a cake-eater, shall we say. Let's talk about the newspapers. We work with a lot of newspaper journalists. We they do. all seem incredibly good guys and devote yep. to their task and to their craft, and yet we still end up with, for instance, the story in The Sun this week about... The England players, senior yeah. players yeah. grabbing more of the sort of sponsorship pie than some others at the World Cup. When we drilled into that story, there was, was nothing in it. I resent it, quite frankly, because I think it's divisive. Whether I agree with it or not, and I didn't agree with the appointment of Gareth Southgate, I've come round to it because obviously you can't not look at what Southgate's doing. He can't doing fight and say, City Hall. He's, no, he's, got, he's got the results, no, he, hasn't he? Of course he has, and he's doing things with a degree of aplomb, and you have to say chapeau and well done when someone and does well. And if I meet him, I'll shake his hand and say, I wasn't sure about this, Gareth, but you've done uh, great. I used to do his dance for him when he was at Crystal Palace right. for BBC. Right. And obviously yeah. uh, the, the manager that I had, Anna, Anna Smith, was the person that gave Gareth Southgate his debut. And obviously I watched Gareth Southgate over the years when I was, and still remain a Palace supporter, but when I went to watch him at the grounds. But you look at these things and you think, the reporting that's been done by that newspaper, which was to take a story spin it into something that it wasn't, they've got nobody complaining about it, and create a culture of contentiousness simply because it sells newspapers or creates division. I don't understand it. The mentality in this country sometimes of building things up simply so you can knock them down. I despise it sometimes. I really do. Whether you call it lazy reporting, aggressive reporting, the blurring of the line between sports and news and and celebrity, Simon, I do think that it's the written press and in particular the tabloid press 
and you've got to be careful, you work for them at the present moment, maybe they've changed, that has led to this bizarre situation where in other sports, and again, I always quote American football, the media and the players are have a reasonably open and interactive conversation the whole time. They have their rows like everybody else. In England in particular, I don't know what happens in Spain, our players are aggressive towards, defensive about, and afraid of their own national press. Yeah, I mean, listen, I write columns for a newspaper. It does irritate me intensely that sometimes I have to dumb it down a bit to meet the readership, apparently, and use words with less than two syllables in it in the opening paragraph. And whether that sits well with the people that I write for, that's my view. But I do feel that there is an element of, you know, uh, a culture that's been brought about by years of people. You know, you look back at Graham Taylor and the way that the press handled that. And whether you like it or you don't like it, it is dreadful reporting when you start comparing somebody to a turnip and you start taking people's personal appearance the, into the, into the, the, the context of... The interesting thing about that, and you can tell me how this comes about, is that the man Brian, I forget his surname now, because uh, he went off to be a PR, who did though was then the sports editor at the right. Sun. I know him because he's a Spurs fan. Really, really decent bloke. Graham Taylor, who I also happen to have spent some time with, really wonderful, decent bloke. And yet somehow, the way our press works, you end up with that thing with a man superimposing a turnip onto a man's head. Well, I also think if you look at the approach of broadcasters and the manner in which they communicate with the audience, I think that sometimes it is very lazy. And we talked about formulaic and structures. You know, you look back at Sky when they had with respect to Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, they had a formula that they stuck to for many years and they were forced to evolve from it. And you now look at the content. Live sport is a very big part of every broadcaster's point of view in sports, but also the content that goes behind it and the way that you give insight and the way that football managers, players are really interrogated. I think there's a lackadaisical approach to the media that they don't dig deep enough and really get proper answers to questions. The, the big media companies, see these giant... Uh, international, multinational agglomerate, Simon, like Sky, if you like, like BT, they're actually terrified of losing, alienating the football industry and the football paymasters because as far as I can see, and we've worked across a number of platforms, you and I, football, as part from pornography, which they can't get involved in, <laughs> is the only thing that actually drives subscriptions. Yeah, true. But, you know, you know my views on the football industry. And, and how, porno, yeah. Yeah. You know I'm on David Cold and David Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> you know my views on the football industry. I can remember, I'm reciting this story to you before, about speaking at a Sunday Telegraph, British Telecom sports function. And I had been, I've been out of football. I've stopped owning Crystal Palace nine years ago. So I hadn't popped up for a while. It's about three years ago, I popped up speaking at a Sunday Telegraph organisation, uh, a function of about 250, 300 people in a room listening to the business of sport. And I sat there with Donna Cullen from mm -hmm. Your Football Club yep. and a Liverpool representative, the head of BT Sport. And the question was, can football evolve? Can it get better? And the answer universally back from those that represented football clubs was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I just sat there and said, you as football clubs are lazy and you're stupid in your thinking. The moment these broadcasters stop and don't need you anymore, the moment BT don't need to protect their broadband business, the moment Sky start rowing back the contribution, which they've done in the last deal domestically, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're not captains of your own ship and you're going to find trouble coming ahead. And it's such lazy, one-dimensional thinking, which is so 
endemic in football from the fact that Sepp Blatter and his crowd were allowed to get away with what they got away with for years, the fact that technology has taken forever and a day to come in, the fact that you've got the introduction of technology in, in the shape of VAR that's coming in in a format that hasn't been really, really it proven. It's been tested and... It's lazy. Uh, and I said this before it came in. I said, I'm a huge fan of it. I believe yeah, it's absolutely too. essential. I said, if they don't look at every possible ramification of every decision and adjust the laws accordingly, yeah. we will have the kind of mess that we've seen at various times this season. And the reason is, Simon, and you've already alluded to it once, while the gravy train continues to roll at 200, like a Japanese bullet train, Nobody has the time or the inclination to do the right thing. That's right, and the motivation, Danny. And when you see, I know, I know, I'm being trite and glib, but most of these chief executives, having been a successful man commercially, having made money and lost money, and know what it takes to be successful and unsuccessful, I look at ninety percent of the chief executives in football and say they would not get a job in any other industry as a chief executive, and half of them I wouldn't employ to run a news agency because they are lazy. They are under-motivated, and I'm going to get probably slaughtered by a raft of chief executives that will either come across me in one guise or another or won't want to engage with me next time we're on another platform. But that is my belief, and I think if you look at decisions that are made, I find it perplexing. I do. I find it perplexing that they get away with it. I find it perplexing that the industry allows it to perpetuate those sort of thinking. But in the end, the industry will become more accountable than it currently is. And if you look at the ideas behind the Football League, this is a league that's so challenged now by the introduction of the Premier League, but has done nothing to step up and change its direction of travel. And what you've got now is a league in anarchy. You've got Middlesbrough suing the EFL over Derby's behaviour. You've got Sunderland suing players or suing doctors. You've got Bolton and Berry nearly going out of business. You've, you've got, got the owners of Sheffield United being forced to come to an agreement this very morning yep. through the courts of law. And the EFL, or whoever the authority is, the EFL... I've watched this going on for two and a half years. Now, how Sheffield United got promoted in that circumstances mm. is one of the great miracle stories. Sure. And I wait for the book of somebody's book, Chris Wilder's book, to come out and tell us how the hell he did that. Let me ask you a last question about the media and its lasers. Has anyone ever made up a straightforward lie about you? Yeah. I mean, the example I just gave you on the show, which was John Cross writing about oh. Glenn Hoddle. You know? But nothing worse than that. You could argue that was speculation. Well, no, it was, that was an outright lie. But, uh, you know, there was articles that were written. The one that caused me the most discomfort, again by the same journalist, and he's not in my swing zone, I'm not targeting him, he, I seem to be in his line of focus, was on the eve of the playoff final, the biggest game in my ownership of this club, four years, tens of millions of pounds of my money, all coming to a culmination in a playoff final against West Ham, I fly back from Spain to read a double-page spread in the mirror telling me that my players are all about to down tools and not play because they hadn't been paid bonuses, which was untrue. I cost the mirror, again, a lot of money, but was incredibly divisive and incredibly disruptive and could have caused absolute anarchy. In a world where social media has allowed football fans yep. to think about the game and interact with other people thinking about the game every moment they want to, every waking moment, where the FIFA game, the hand-played one, or football manager allows everyone to the uh, illusion that they can buy and sell players yep. and run a football club, where people genuinely are far more 
knowledgeable about the game. They know all the players that play in France and Germany. Well, they also know the backstory behind things rather they, than the prima facie look down. Yes, they do. They do. And yet you still get fans coming to the most knee-jerk conclusions of everything. For a start, let's look, since we're doing Sloth, is there such a thing, once they're out on the pitch, as a lazy player? Is Mesut Ozil lazy, as people accuse him? Is Paul Pogba lazy? I'm not sure that we're not being ourselves really, really slow-witted when we start just labelling people like that. Oh, I don't know, Dan. In those instances that you give, I mean, if they walk, talk and sound like a duck, <laughs> I, I think they're ducks. But fans... But Mesut Ozil's running stats are incredible. Yeah, I think Mesut Ozil, you know, is a certain type of player that body language-wise gives you that thinking. But I also think we're not just talking about his running stats. We're talking about his approach to the game. When the going gets tough, that boy don't get going. And if you've got somebody in the trenches, the last person you'd want is Mesut Ozil with you. And I don't think that's lazy thinking. I think that's because we're seeing it in front of our eyes. Now, going to the subject of fans, you know, it's lazy thinking to think that fans are paying people's wages those days have long gone and certainly in the elite league but fans themselves have a greater responsibility than just shouting the odds when things don't go the way that they want them to go of course fans are you know the lifeblood of the club of course without football fans in a stadium you have no energy you have no momentum no you have you have no you have companies. no vitality but the idea that fans, it always perplexed me that fans have the right to shout people out of jobs because you'd no sooner go round to their place of work if you didn't like a hamburger that was served to you in a restaurant they worked in and start screaming at their bosses to sack them because it's very easy to sack somebody or shout out the odds of sacking somebody. It's much more difficult to replace them. And I find that, it's, I don't know if it's a laziness or it's a slothful thinking, but the idea that the next billionaire around the corner should be someone that runs your club. The next manager or the next group of players, rather than working the oracle, supporting things when they are unsupportable at times. I mean, that's what I believe is a football supporter's job. Of course you want them to be emotive, because in, no, in no other industry, Dan, do you get to serve up crap one week and get people to come back but and I, pay for it the know, next. The, I'm as bad as everybody else, but you know, and yet I know in my own life, if somebody has a problem, say in my family there is a problem, um, my, my instinct is for everybody to circle the wagons, let's see if we can work this out and give this person a bit of support, a bit of time yep. to get themselves sorted out. As soon as somebody doesn't take a corner correctly at Tottenham, I'm demanding that they have their contract ripped up and they be moved on to Leighton Orient yeah. as app, you know. Maybe I'm being lazy in my thinking because I'm more pragmatic because I've owned a football club yeah. and see both sides of the coin. But it used to... No, infuri- I'm, I'm sort of agreeing with you that the fans have got their part to play as well. I think they've got a massive part to play. I think fans are the energy behind a football club and it's lazy owners that will allow themselves to acquiesce to fans' thinking even though owners themselves know the bigger picture. Listen, if it's wrong, it's wrong and you see it's wrong and you've got to be brave and you can't procrastinate and prevaricate. I prevaricated at times. you know. And when you prevaricate, compromise is always something that you get compromise outcomes from. You have to be brave. You have to be definitive in your decision-making place. If you're an owner and you believe in something and you allow people to shout it out of you then you're lazy in your approach to the obligations that you have and too many times football club owners are lazy I look back at myself and I think I wish I'd been a little bit more lazy at the end of my tenure at Palace because maybe I'd have walked out with a little bit more money than I did. But because I wanted to stay there, because I wanted to believe in the fact that I could solve the problems that I particularly had, because I wanted to believe in the mentality that you can overcome things in front of you if you just simply want to, sometimes that isn't true. Sometimes the the adage of quitting whilst you're ahead isn't the same as quitting. 
is a better mentality. I think we've been very energetic, you and I, for the last three quarters of an hour in beating everybody in the football industry who doesn't either work very hard or look like they're working very hard. I think it would be only correct for me to end then by mentioning, of course, that as a, at least in one experience in my life, somebody who looked like he wouldn't lift a finger also gave me two or three years of unbelievable pleasure and sometimes looks is deceiving and effectiveness doesn't come from just running around. I thought my Dimitar Berbatov, when I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking, Dimitar, bless him, even now when you see him as a pundit, he literally looks like it might be too much trouble to get to the door, to go to the toilet. But what a brilliant, brilliant football he was. So let's be slightly careful before we give everybody the shooing that the rest of them so obviously deserve. Um, Shall we do some more or we are too lazy to carry on? Listen, when it comes to the subject of taking a swing at some of the practices and principles behind football, I don't think we could ever accuse you and I of being lazy about it. This is the Marathon Bet podcast. And of course, one of the best things about that, it means that Marathon Bet blessed them in their beauty have allowed us, myself and Simon, to try and win some money for our chosen charities. As I keep saying, um, we're not the best at this prediction game. I think that's good. What I love about English football is it's largely unpredictable. Norwich, Manchester City being a classic example. So it is hard to win the money. We have to pick the winners of three games and and eventually um, we will get some money for these charities. We're joined now from Marathon Bet by Dan Taus, who will give us the uh, correct odds and the likelihood of this week's selections actually coming good and what games have we picked Dan so Simon you went first and you chose Leicester I did to beat Spurs yeah that's just pure slightly vengeful pure yes. revenge <laughs> slightly vengeful because they gave a clogging last week I just think that uh, Leicester at home are quite a formidable outfit I like Brendan Rodgers I think if Vardy's fit he will give Spurs all the trouble that they can handle and I don't think Spurs are that great on the road at the moment. So well, Spurs haven't been great on the road since January, I think. It was I that, think they haven't won a league game. I'm not sure they've won any game. Did they win uh, in Ajax in the Champions League? They've, they've certainly not won a Premier League game, game on the road since January. And if they're going to finish in the top four this year, as everyone seems to think, and indeed Marathon Bet seems to think, if I'm looking at your odds, they're going to have to change that because you won't, you won't get all those points at home, will you? No, you're right. And Leicester are 85 to 40. I mean, you look at Leicester at the moment. They're fifth at the moment. They're two points off second. I know we discussed in last week's mm-hmm. podcast, could they finish in the top four? You felt it was a little bit out there for them. But if you look at their next few fixtures, between now and the middle of November, they've got Spurs, obviously, at the weekend, Newcastle, Liverpool, Burnley, Southampton and Palace. There's some very winnable games there. And if you pick up something against Spurs and Liverpool... They could be heading near the top of the table if teams like City keep falling away. Uh, they've made a, a pretty similar start to the year they won the title. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> All right, next. So, Danny, you yeah. went for Everton at home to Sheffield United. I just think, I mean, two things have happened here. I think Sheffield United, whose manager we all admire, as we saw their home defeat last weekend, they are... A very, very industrious side, and they do all those weird things with the overlapping centre-halves, but they're playing in the Premier League now. It's big boys. And Southampton just sat there and waited for them to make a mistake and got their mistake. And I think they're going up against an Everton side who I thought were shocking this weekend. Mm. But you can't be shocking two weeks running, otherwise the manager starts to get into the crosshairs of the owners. Everton have got to do what they're going to do at home. I mean, Everton were really, really bad in that 3-1 defeat at Bournemouth. Mm. I didn't see what kind of shape they were. I didn't see what kind of team they're going to be. But it's rare that the mid-table teams allow themselves two complete weeks off. And I suspect that Sheffield United are... If you ask me, Dan, who was going to get relegated this year, I've got no clue as to where the Premier League set up. But I think Sheffield United will still be my favourites. And this is the sort of game that Everton, if they've got 
anything about them at all have to win. I agree. I mean, Everton, I can never quite work them out, as you said. I mean, you look at the weekend and they were dreadful. They've won two, lost two and drawn one, but they have won two at home and you'd think they'd be have too much for Sheffield United. They're 71 to 100. Their odds on as expected. Yeah, yeah. And I think they would have too much for Sheffield United as well. What was our third choice we made between us? Your third choice was yours, Danny. Yeah. You went for the Hammers to beat Man United at yeah. home. At the moment, Manchester United, they did the thing that they really wanted to do the last weekend when they, when they won at home. They kept a clean sheet, but they got the advantage of an early goal, a penalty that Rashford converted, and I think uh, that settled everything down. I don't think they're very settled just now. Um, and I think West Ham, as I sometimes have to say through slightly gritted teeth, have got the best squad of players that I can remember over there since the days of Trevor Brookin. And the manager, he's not at the stage of his career where he wants to be a revolutionary, but he knows about football. He knows how to put a team out. And West Ham United, you, you see their home performances against big teams are very, very good because the crowd get after them. If you, I think that, if you look at that boy up front for West Ham as well, and if you look at the way that, that, yeah, if you look mm. at the way that Man United played on the weekend, the two centre halves looked all over the place, Maguire and Lindelof, and I think he'll give them real trouble. And the likes of Yarmolenko will not allow Manchester United's fullbacks to get the kind of freedom on the pitch they had at the weekend. I would be Sorry if I was proved wrong here because of the stake of the bet, but I wouldn't be surprised. But I think that they'll give Manchester United a very good game. Well, Man United, obviously, they won on Saturday against Leicester. But prior to that, they hadn't won a Premier League game before the first game of the season, which was against Chelsea. They won 4-0. And obviously, at the time of recording, West Ham are playing tonight away to Aston Villa. If they win that, they go third above Spurs. So, actually, you're right about the squad of players and the Pellegrini's brought together. I think they're a very good side. And West Ham are 66-25 to 25 to beat Man United at home on Saturday. So That looks long to me, but I'm not a bookmaker. Well, look, let's all hope the bets come in. And if they all do, then we'll just be shy of 400 quid for your chosen charities. That would be absolutely delicious. Thanks, Dad. And this is one of my favourite parts of the show, where Simon and I really have to kind of put our money where our mouth is and select individuals who are guilty of this week's sin, in this case, Sloth. They go into our sin bin. We're building up a very good squad of very bad people. We'll pick an ultimate 11 and we get to the end of the series. So, Simon, I'll start with you because I'd rather you got in trouble first. Okay, mate. Who is going in the sin bin for you for the sin of Sloth? I'm conflicted. My first reaction was to look at Granite Zaka's pathetic, lazy response after the game about the players being frightened by Watford in the second half or frightened of the fact that they could get caught and, and they certainly did I can't be accused of patronage I'm going to pick Mamadou Sacco of Palace despite the fact that Spurs were very good I just think some of his performance and his level of fitness and awareness in that game to my mind looked slothful it looked like he was lazy the first header that he completely misjudged now you could say well, he's been out for a long time but I don't care surely you come back strong you can't be tired you know you shouldn't be tired <laughs> it I mean, was also I... very early in the game it yeah that excuse. you know so I'm going to put Sacco Mamadou Sacco into our sin bin and our sin team okay well actually I'm going to match him up with another centre half and I know sometimes talking about David Luiz is like shooting fish in a very small barrel in fact in a thimble you can get a fish into a thimble it's like shooting that but honestly I think it's the, the laziness of him is that he will not learn from his mistakes he is a brilliant footballer if you gave him a football and say pass this thing around he's a good athlete all the rest of it but he makes the same mistakes both psychological and tactical over and over again. That penalty, how many times have you seen him come to the edge of the box, stick a leg half out, then try and pull it back, inviting referees to give perfectly reasonable penalties? You see that thing where he goes to the touchline and decides to pull out of the tackle. We saw it again um, in the North London derby. We see it a number of times, and he just, I think, 
It's either stubbornness, Simon, which is also a kind of weird Arrogance. thing to have. Yep. Or I think it's just plain laziness. He thinks he's a great player. He's got medals to prove it. Yeah. He's been at some of the great clubs of world football. And once again this weekend for Arsenal, uh, God bless him. He was the leader of their laziness boot camp um, uh, on the edge of their own box. And he goes definitely into our sin bin. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Thank you all for listening uh, to this podcast. Of course, we're continuing to do the Marathon Bet podcast. We go through all of the seven deadly sins. Then we're going to make up three of our own to make a series of ten. I know that more and more of you are listening. I hope that you're enjoying listening to it as much as we are doing it, in which case you're having an absolute blast. Next week, we'll be back with another deadly sin. Join us then. Marathon bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org.